As we begin the new year, uh, many of us make resolutions. Now, I'm not going to embarrass you by asking how many of you have made a resolution this year or how many of you already failed in that resolution this year. But, you know, there are resolutions that we always make, and, and, and these are common resolutions. Uh, according to a, a newspaper article, there was a, um, a list of top 10 resolutions uh, that we make. And so let me uh, post some of those up here. Number one is diet or eat healthier. Uh, 71% said that. Exercise more, 65% said that. Lose weight uh, was 54. Now, do you see a theme in the first three? Uh, it has to do with just the physical uh, aspect of our lives. And number four has to do with save more, spend less. Five, learn a new hobby or skill. Six, quit smoking. Seven, read more. Uh, number eight was find another job. Number nine was drink less alcohol. And number 10, spend more time with friends and family. You know, I think the whole winner in the resolution uh, uh, setting is really uh, my gym membership. <laughs> Every year, I get the same phone call in January, and they call me to renew this membership. And what ends up happening is they call me, and I said, oh, sure, do you want to go? And my, I asked my wife, and my wife says, don't sign up again, because you'll never end up going. So, but you know me, I have this mindset that I'm going to make this resolution, I'm going to keep it. So I, I say, sure, charge whatever you, you want to charge. And so I've been doing this for 20-some years. And this is, the, this is what happens. So in January, the first two, three weeks, I go. And I get all excited, I'm all pumped up. And then after a few weeks, you know, I make up some excuses and eventually for the whole year, it goes back to repeat cycle again. Well, I think for many of us, we have the same kind of uh, challenge, don't we? We often make resolutions that we often don't keep. Uh, according to US uh, News and World Report, you know how many percent of people actually break their resolution by February? 80%. <laughs> Come the 1st of January, they write, the hordes of enthusiastic resolutioners account for the swelling number of gym, yoga, and Pilates memberships as the diet books fly off the shelf. By the second week of February, some 80% of those resolutioners are back at home with new kinds of remorse staring back at them, the remorse of disappointment. Well, here's a simple uh, way to actually set goals and resolutions. If you actually want to do that, which I think can be a good thing, is that you have to have certain things to think about. Number one, uh, science has, uh, scientists have said, if you want to keep resolution, there are two ways to do it. One is to set attainable goals, incremental goals. Rather than say, I'm going to lose 20 pounds in January, say I'm going to lose one pound. Uh, or two pounds this month, I'm going to lose two pounds next month, and so forth. If you set small attainable goals, there's a greater likelihood that you'll complete it, you'll fulfill it. The second thing they said is make sure that you have accountability. In other words, don't do it alone, just don't write a resolution on a paper. Instead, share it with people. Uh, in this article, it says uh, announcing it to your friends, your loved ones, and the people that you share with, they will help you create an additional support system. And if you think about it, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? So there's nothing wrong with resolutions. There's nothing wrong with making those resolutions. You just have to have a support system to fulfill it. Well, let me ask you, whatever your resolutions might be for this year, I hope there is one resolution that we as a church can make together. And it's a resolution, I think, is really a resolution that the Bible calls us to make. And in this particular book, 
Paul begins with this resolution. He says this, we always thank God. You know, if there's one resolution I want to start off in 2019 is the resolution of gratitude. How many of us have a grateful attitude or a grateful heart? If you can resolve one thing, just say this. I resolve to be more of a grateful person this year. So in this particular book in 1 Thessalonians, Paul begins with these words. We always thank God. And at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, he ends with these words. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. In other words, Paul's theology was this. You begin with gratitude you end with gratitude. That gratitude should be the two bookends of our lives. That we, as Christians, should be the most grateful people. Why? Because God is, work, is at work within us. Now, if you think about this, what is the thing that we're most grateful for? And that's salvation. In verse 4, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. In other words, the grateful thing that we have as Christians is that nobody could take this away from us. Is that God has selected us. God has chosen us. God has elected us. God has given us salvation. And I think for that, every Christian in this room should be grateful. That it's not because we earned it, but he chose to give it to us. But you know... There's something else that Paul talks about. Because it's not only salvation that we should be grateful for. We should also be grateful for what God is doing in us now. And that's the process of sanctification. It is the inward transformation that is happening. And so Paul begins by saying this in verse 2. We always thank our God for this. And in verse 3, he lays out the three things that I believe are the three distinctive marks of a Christian. If you're to ask somebody, what does a Christian look like? Oftentimes they'll give you all these different answers, which really is not a Christian. It's what we would sort of define as as maybe a cultural Christian, but not really a biblical Christian. And so we want to explore that in these uh, next few moments. But before we do that, I just want to give you an overview of the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you missed last week, uh, we are beginning this new series on on Thessalonians. The journey of Paul, uh, as some of you know, Paul went on these missionary journeys. So the first missionary journey, Paul focused mostly on Asia Minor, from Antioch all the way up to modern-day Turkey. So he stayed in that Asia Minor region. And one day, he gets a vision in chapter 16. A man from Macedonia, which is now beginning part of Europe or, or northern Greece, a man from Macedonia said, come over here. And so Paul changes his plans in chapter 16 and makes a trek across from Asia to Europe for the very first time. And one of the cities he goes to is Thessalonica. Thessalonica was known to be a a, a major city, 200 to 300,000 people. It was the largest city in that province. It was a metropolitan city. It would be like Los Angeles in some ways. They had an amphitheater. They had entertainment. They had gladiator shows. There was a circus in which people would go. It was a very happening city. It was so large and so influential, it was the capital of the whole area. And so 
Paul goes in, as was his custom, and he preaches the gospel in a synagogue, which is the Jewish place where they gather. And he preaches, talks about Jesus being the Old Testament fulfillment. Some of the Jews come to know Jesus. And then he gets kicked out of the synagogue. The Jews hate what he's saying. And so he preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. The Gentiles come to know him. And, and people are coming to this newfound faith. And there's excitement in the air, but there's also persecution. Because as people are coming to faith, they're churning over the old idols. And as a result, the people who are in established power are, are, are concerned. And so they're, they're, they start to attack the Thessalonians. Well, they try to drag Paul and his two companions, Timothy and Silas, uh, into the public so that they could actually persecute them. But Paul and Silas and Timothy had already left. They had gone to other cities. And eventually, Paul, in chapter 18, lands in Corinth, in chapter 18 of the book of Acts. And in Corinth, Paul starts to write this letter. This is the first book of the New Testament. Or the first book that Paul wrote in the New Testament. It's the very first book to remind this small, struggling church that God has a purpose for your life. That the persecutions that you are enduring are not there just done in vain. Because I believe that if you were a Thessalonian back then, you, you're just this newfound church. You don't have any scripture except for what Paul spoke to you. And, and you're asking Paul, Paul, why are people dying? What's going to happen in the future? They begin to ask these questions, and so Paul wrote an answer in this book. So the book really deals with the whole theme that we can have hope in the present because of the future hope of Christ's coming. That no matter what happens, no matter what circumstances you deal with, here's the good news, that Christ will come back in, vict in victory, and he will bring his kingdom back on earth. And so those who have died will be resurrected. And those who are alive when Christ comes back will be reunited with God. And God will establish his throne on earth. That's the message of this book. So he begins the message of that book with, with a simple point. And here's the main message for today. That the church for the future must live in gratitude for three distinctive marks of a Christian. Faith, love, and hope. Now, the word faith, love, and hope, or faith, hope, and love, the way we hear it, the triad, are the things that Paul writes about throughout his letters. And so if you want to kind of trace the theology of these three words, Paul uses faith, love, and hope, or faith, hope, and love as the three markers of the Christian life. We see this in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, Galatians 5, Romans 5, Colossians 1, Ephesians 4. But not only does Paul use these words, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 8, also uses these words. In other words, it's not just the Paul theology, it's the gospel of the New Testament. That we are to be people that embodies faith, hope, and love. Now the question is, what does that mean for us? And so Paul, in this first part of the prayer, prays and thanks God for what they are living out. And so in verse 3, he says this, We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and in your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to unpack the three marks of what a Christian should look like. These are the things. If somebody were to say, what does a Christian look like? These are the three things that they embody. So what are those? Number one, the first mark of a Christian should be marked by our work of faith. By our work of faith. 
If there is a, a universal need in all of mankind, is the universal need to believe in something. It doesn't matter whether you are a, a child in India or a child in Africa or a child in, in Asia or a child in North America. Every single person has a desire innately to believe in something. We, we want to believe in something or someone. We all have this desire, this need for that. In every culture, there's a need to believe something greater than ourselves. Why is that? Well, part of that is, is that we know that, that life is more than just about us. It's something is, we're part of something greater, and we don't know exactly what that may be. And so this desire to believe is what we call faith. And every person whether you are even an atheist or agnostic, we all have faith. In other words, we place our faith in something. We put our trust in something. And so you have faith when you drive. You have faith that your car is going to take you from point A to point B. Uh, you have faith in what you eat. In other words, you believe that what you eat is going to bring nourishment to your body. It's not going to make you sick and die. It's going to help you become, uh, it's going to give you energy and so forth. We all have faith. But here's the thing about faith. Faith is not the thing that's important, but it's what you have your faith in. In other words, it's the object of faith that is more critical than faith itself. Because all of us could want to believe in something very strongly. It doesn't mean our belief is wrong unless we place our belief in something that is wrong. In other words, the object of our faith determines the validity of our faith. Let me give you an example. Imagine if I had two chairs up here, and in these two chairs, one chair uh, had a broken leg, but I didn't know it. The other chair, they had all four legs that were sturdy. Now, I could have the same amount of faith in chair A and the same amount of faith in, 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 in uh, chair B. My faith is the same in both chairs. But really, what's going to hold my weight is, is it doesn't matter how much faith I have in chair A. If I sit on it, I'm gonna, it the chair is going to collapse. Why? Because the object of my faith determines the validity of my faith. Chair B, because it's strong, I place my faith in it. I'm going to sit. It's going to hold me up, and it holds me up. And so as Christians, here's the point that Paul is making, that our faith is in the object of a person that has fulfilled the very promise of the Old Testament. Jesus is not somebody who's just a good teacher, a moral leader. That Jesus is who he says he is. He's, he is God in human flesh. And so our faith is in a God that can resurrect himself, that can resurrect the dead. He can resurrect us. And so we believe in Christ, the, the Son of God. We believe that he died and rose again. And, and that person is what makes our faith real. He's the only one that can meet and exceed all of, our, of all the truth of human history. But here's the thing about faith, is that faith is not just a cognitive understanding. It's not a set of beliefs. Faith, to be real, has to be believed and has to be uh, lived out. In other words, it doesn't matter if you believe in something, and if you believe in something and you don't live it out, that faith, that belief, really becomes void. Let me give you an example. Uh, Ken Davis tells a story when he was in college. He had to prepare this lesson. And this lesson was on the law of the pendulum. And the law of the pendulum goes something like this. That the starting point, if you were to think, think of this big metallic ball, 
if the starting point, if you were to swing it up, will never exceed the point of where it went from. A pendulum can never return to a point higher than the point from which it was released. Because of friction and of gravity, when the pendulum returns, it will fall short of its original release point. Each time it swings, it will swing less and less of an arc until, the, until finally it's at rest. The point of rest is what we call the state of equilibrium. So we know this. That, that's what he was stating. So he was going to prove it. So what he did was in the auditorium, he actually got a rope with this 250-pound metal uh, ball, and he tied it. And he said, how many of you believe in the law of the pendulum? And everybody said, we believe, we believe. And so he said, okay, I'm going to test one of you. Uh, would you, I need a volunteer. And nobody volunteered. So the, he asked the instructor, would you stand over here? And you sit in a chair, and I want you to just face the wall. So he had his back toward the wall. Uh, and he says, I want you to stay right there. Professor, uh, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? And the professor looked at him and said, of course I believe in the law of the pendulum. Okay, professor. So he held the ball right next to the guy's ear. And he pulled it all the way to the top. And just before he was about to go release it, the guy stands up and runs away. Now, the question for you is, uh, he actually released it. It didn't hit the guy's ear. But the guy escaped. Here's the question. Did the guy truly believe? See, belief is not just about saying, agreeing to something. And a lot of us who, who have grown up in church, that's how we look at faith. We look at faith as a set of beliefs that, that we just sort of agree upon. Here's the point of the Christian life, that Christianity is not about faith in believing, mental assent, but faith is about living out, acting, behaving. So if your belief and your behavior do not coincide or are not consistent, then really the question is, is your faith real? See, that's the question that James was asking in James chapter 2. He said this, what good is it, my brothers, verse 14, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily bread, daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone would say, you have faith, I have deeds. And then James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Then he's, he gives an interesting apologetic in verse 19. He says, you believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, even the demons have the right theology. Demons understand that God is real, God is powerful, but they just don't believe it. And so the question for us is this. That faith has to act. If faith does not act, then really is it faith? And it has to go beyond mere mental intellectual assent. Because even the demons have faith in God. But really, their faith is not real. And I think the sad reality of our Christians of our day is that we say we believe. But the question is, do you truly believe that God can do all things? Do you believe God is the one who's at, in control of our lives, that you just trust him no matter how bad the situation of your life may be? That do you, are you willing to cling to him? Are you willing to trust in him? In verse 20 of chapter 2, uh, uh, James, he gives the illustration of a man in the Bible. His name is Abraham. 
He says, you foolish man, do you want evidence? Faith without deeds is useless. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions are working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Abraham believed God and was credited to him in righteousness. Here's what makes Christians distinctive. We believe in a God that is still alive. And we believe in a God that still acts. And as we place our faith in him, our faith begins to grow, our faith begins to mature, and guess what happens? Our faith eventually becomes so large in trusting in God, it it enlarges our view and understanding of God. It doesn't enlarge God. It uh, uh, enlarges our understanding of God. I'll give you an interesting analogy. In uh, Mark Patterson, who's a pastor of a church in D.C., uh, wrote a book called Chase the Lion. And he made an interesting statement. He said this. You know, if you've ever played with dominoes and you put, line them up, right? You have the dominoes. There's a chain reaction. You knock one domino over and the other dominoes uh, fall in line. Did you know there's something interesting about dominoes? Uh, Whitehead Research was discovering that a domino not only could knock down another domino, it can knock down a domino one and a half times its size. Now think about this. A two-inch domino could topple a three-inch domino. A three-inch domino could topple a four-and-a-half-inch domino. A four-and-a-half-inch domino could topple, well, you get the point, right? By the time you have the 18th domino, you can knock over the, the Tower of Pizza uh, in Italy. In other words... If you think about it, if you have 28 dominoes, you can knock down the Empire State Building. And he says this, in the realm of mathematics, there are two types of progression, linear and geometric. Linear progression is 2 plus 2 equals 4. Geometric progression is compound doubling. 2 times 2 equals 4. If you take 30 linear steps, you're at 90 feet. But take 30 geometric steps, you circle the earth. 26 times. Here's the point. Faith isn't linear. Faith is geometric. Every decision we make, every step of faith we take causes a chain reaction. And those chain reactions will set off a thousand chain reactions that we aren't even aware of. In other words, if you think about it, how does our faith work out? We trust in God for something very small. And as we trust him for something small, we trust him for something bigger. And it continually goes. And as our faith is worked out, guess what happens to our faith? It starts to grow. It starts to enlarge. So here's the question. What is your faith producing? Are you having a greater dependence on God? Or do you just want more intellectual knowledge about God? True faith is one that changes us, that transforms us, that allows us to depend fully on God. So no matter what your circumstances may be, can you trust in a God who can provide? If you lose your job this year, can you trust in a God that can provide for you? If you uh, get injured physically and you're in the hospital, can you trust in a God who can restore you? Faith is the ability to trust. And, And sometimes some of us have to start with something very small. But faith without belief, without works, is dead. So question I want to ask you this year is what are the things that you're willing to step out in faith in? 
For some of you, it may be sharing the gospel with a co-worker or a neighbor, something that's uncomfortable for you, but something that you're willing to do. Faith may be uh, looking at a new opportunity, maybe getting, uh, passing on an old opportunity, but, but looking for something else. Maybe faith for you is taking a trip overseas on a mission, doing something that takes you out of your comfort zone. Somebody said this, if you could do something in your own strength, then really does it take faith to accomplish it? In other words, if you can do it in your own strength, do you really need God? Many of us as Christians, we talk about our need for God. But you only need God when it's impossible. That's where faith comes in. Can you believe in a God who can do the impossible? The second mark of a Christian is this. Our second mark as Christians is that we need to be marked by our labor of love. Labor prompted by love. In this passage, we see Paul use a similar idea of faith, right? He talks about faith, but then he talks about love. And for us, love is central to the Christian life. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, where he, it's the love chapter, he describes all the attributes of love. Paul ends chapter 13 by saying this, there are three things that remain, faith, hope, and love. Now, some of you may wonder, why does Paul use faith, hope, and love in that chapter? differently than why he uses faith, love, and hope in this order. In other words, the word order is different. What well, has to do with Paul's emphasis. In 1 Corinthians 13, the emphasis there is love. All three things are essential for the Christian life. But he says this, that what's most essential is the characteristic, the attribute of love. In this chapter, in 1 Thessalonians, the most important thing here in Paul's argument is hope. Because it is the hope of the future that determines your present reality. And so the second thing he does point out is love. Now, when you read this passage, you begin to say, okay, what's the difference between work and labor? It sounds almost like synonymous. It's like using the same thesaurus word. But there's an emphasis here. Where faith and work are, the work is the result of our faith, is actions based upon what we believe. Here, labor has to do with something a little bit more different. It has to do with the express cost of love, not its results. In, in other words, labor of love is more than what it produces. It's also what, the way in which it works. So it's hard work. It's painful work. It's sacrificial work. Labor has to do with the cost involved. And here's the thing about Christian love. That Christian love is central to our faith because it is costly at its very core. You know, when you think about love, we throw that word out a lot, don't we? Oh, I love you. Well, what does that really mean in our culture? For a lot of the people in our culture, love is about the superficial feeling that we get. And love in our culture is very selfish, but not sacrificial. In other words, if you make me happy, I will stay with you. But if you make me unhappy, I will throw you away. And that's the modern day love. It's based upon what the Greeks would call eros love. It's the most selfish expression of love. If I were to use another word, it's a convenient love. It's a love of convenience. And that's the mindset of, of, of a lot of people. And so what people are looking for is not just convenient love. They're looking for something bigger and better, but they don't know what it is. And here's what the Bible says, that the kind of love that God has for us is not the superficial, convenient love. 
but is a love that is willing to extend cost, that's willing to die for us. And I think about this. We talk about every, in every culture, people have a desire to believe in something. But in every culture, there's also a desire to belong to someone. Everybody has this desire. And especially if you think about even as infants, what happens when infants are deprived of love? In South America, there was an orphanage. And one observer named Spitz recorded what happened to 97 children that were in this orphanage. They were deprived of emotional and physical contact. Because there was a lack of funds, there were only three nurses to tend to children from three to three years old. Nurses changed the diapers, fed and bathed the children, but there was little time to hold, cuddle, and talk to them as a mother would. After three months, many of these children showed signs of abnormality. Besides a loss of appetite, some were unable to sleep, and many of the children laid vacant with vacant expressions in their eyes. After five months, serious deterioration set in. They laid whimpering with troubled and twisted faces. Others, when a nurse or doctor would pick the infant up, it would scream in terror. 27 of the children died in the first year, but not from a lack of food or health care. They, they died for a lack of touch and emotional nurture. Because of this, seven more died the second year, and 21 of the 97 eventually survived. And here's a sad fact, that those who survived had serious emotional and psychological damage that had altered their future for the rest of their life. Human beings, from its very foundation formation, we are designed to be loved. And that's why one of the most painful things you can take away from a child is their parent. When you deprive them, or when a parent is abusive and do not love and take care of their children, what ends up happening is, in, in psychology, there's what they call a, uh, attachment disorder. Kids who grow up to be seriously endangering society often are ones who, at the very formation of their lives, did not have love. And that's the very kind of love that God gave to us. The Bible says this, that while we were still sinners, that God died for us. That the kind of love that the Bible is talking about is not this emotional, superficial love, but is a love in which God is willing to give everything of himself to us. That is what we talk about, the labor of love. Jesus himself in John 13, 34 says, A new command I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you ought to love one another. And if you are my disciples, you have to love the way I loved you. Jesus also said this, that greater love has no man than this, that he's willing to lay down his life for a friend. The ultimate expression of true love is self-sacrifice. And that's the labor that, 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 that Timothy, uh, Paul is talking to the Thessalonians. True love is hard work. True love is, is work in which we sacrifice ourselves. So when two couples, when a man and a wife get married, uh, if they base their love upon the selfish love, their, their marriage eventually will erode. Whether it ends up in divorce or not, they'll be disconnected. But the true love that the Bible describes is the one in which we are willing to give ourselves for the sake of others. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him 
who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, that Jesus himself embodied the very definition of love by willing to die for us. So here's the second mark of a Christian, is that we are to be the most loving people. Not because we can get something from somebody, but we are to love at the expense of ourselves for others. And I think when the world sees a Christian who's living out in faith, believing in a God greater than themselves, somebody who's willing to, at cost of themselves for the sake of others, the world begins to see a real reflection of what true Christianity looks like. But there's a third characteristic or third mark. The third mark as Christians are that those who are marked by a steadfast hope. Not only is it that we place our faith in someone or something, not only do we love at our cost, we are also to be marked by people of hope. Now think about what hope is. It's what I would call a dream, aspiration. Everybody who's grown up, most of uh, humanity, doesn't matter what culture, when you're a little boy or a little girl, you want to be someone. You want to become somebody. You could be a teacher, an athlete, a fireman, a nurse, a doctor. Even as a little kid, the first question we ask is, what do you want to be? I want to be this. Because inside of us is a desire that hope is what drives us forward. Is that hope is what moves us to conquer obstacles in our present. So when I was a boy, a little boy, I, I wanted to be a, a, a sports athlete. I wanted to play baseball. And so as a little boy, I, I, I followed baseball. My dad took me to a first uh, game when I was a, a little boy in Los Angeles, watched the Dodgers. And I remember going to a Dodger game. I want to do that. So as a little boy, I would play little leagues. I would go out in the field every day. I would, I would hit uh, a ball with my dad. I would play catch with him. I would join little leagues. Eventually, I went to high school. Because that hope is what drove me. But then God changed that hope into something else. And that hope was to preach the gospel. I became a Christian at the age of 13. And from that point on, since the age of 13, 14 years old, my hope was that God was going to allow me to share the gospel to other people. And so for these last 40 years, I've lived my life trying to, uh, for that hope that was within me. And I think that's what hope does. It gives us a, a a future that we can look to. But what happens when people lose hope? When the future is bleak, your life becomes disarray, doesn't it? Or in despair. Some years ago, there was a hydroelectric dam that was being built in New England. The people in that small town of the valley, they were going to relocate them to another part of town. And so they had a a certain amount of time to prepare. And during the the time between the decision to build the dam and its completion, the building in that town fell into disarray. It fell into dis- disrepair. Instead of this once, this pretty little quaint town had now become a rundown town. It became an eyesore. So why did this happen? The answer was simple. One resident said this, where there is no hope in the future, there is no work in the present. Why take care of something if it's going to be destroyed, Right? Why even take care of it? If you know that tomorrow it's going to all burn, why do you even worry about it? 
And that's the same mindset that God gives us. That because we have hope, we could endure. We could suffer. We could hold on steadfast. Hope is the desire to see what, the promise of what is ahead. You know what happens when we have hope? We can endure longer. We can persevere when it's very difficult. A number of years ago, uh, researchers performed an experiment on the effect of hope uh, of undergoing hardship. Two sets of laboratory rats were placed in two tubs of water. And, and as these rats in these two tubs of water, the researcher left one set in the water and found that within an hour, they'd all drowned. The other rats were periodically lifted out of the water and then returned before they were to drown. When that happened, the second set of rats swimmed, not for one hour, but they swam for 24 hours. Why? Because these rats had this sort of notion that they were at some point going to be rescued. And I think for us as Christians, we have to be people of hope. Yes, sometimes life doesn't go the way we want it to go. We're going to lose our jobs. We're going to lose the ones that we care for. We're going we're to maybe have a disease that we are ill-prepared for. The economy is going to collapse. We're going to lose our home. All these things are going to happen to some of us in this room. And that's just reality. And God is no respecter of persons. Those things are life. But here's the thing that we have. No matter what we encounter, we can endure. You know, the word steadfast is important. Because it has the idea of holding on. The Greek word there, steadfast, is, is the Greek word hupomone, hupomone, which means to remain under. It is not the idea of just kind of passive holding on, like if you were to hold on to something, kind of endure it. It's actually the idea of actively moving forward, no matter how hard. So think of an analogy. Let's say wind is blowing. Uh, endurance might just be like, like holding tight so that you, you don't get blown away. Steadfastness is actually the opposite. Is that even though the wind's blowing, you're moving, you're moving forward. You're charging ahead. And that is what Paul is saying in this. Because the hope that we have in the future allows us to persevere through the hardships of today. The future allows you to hang in there even when it's difficult or even if it's mundane. I'll give you a great illustration. Imagine there were two women and they were working in an assembly line. The same economic status, the same educational level, they had the same personality or temperament. You hired both of them to say to each, you're part of an assembly line. And I want to put, I want you to put uh, A into B and then hand over to somebody else I want you to do this over and over again for eight hours. You put them in an identical room with identical lighting, temperature, ventilation. You give them the very same number of breaks in the day. It is very boring work. Their conditions are the same in every way except for one difference. You tell one of them, first woman, you tell the first woman at the end of the year, she would be paid $30,000. But you tell the second woman, at the end of the year, she'll be paid $30 million. After a couple of weeks, the first woman says to the other woman, isn't this tedious? Isn't this driving you insane? Aren't you thinking about quitting? And the second woman will say, no, it's perfectly acceptable. In fact, I whistle while I work. What is going on? 
Well, you have two different, two human beings who are experiencing the identical circumstances of life. But the response is radically different because they have a different expectation for the future. Christians, you and I have a different expectation for the future. Christians should not be in despair because we have hope. And that hope may not be immediate, but we have hope that we cling to. And so we endure even though when life gets difficult. And there are some people in our culture that have given up hope. And sometimes our minds get clouded with despair. And it's easy to happen, even for Christians who have been Christians for a long time, that we lose a sense of God's presence in our life. And so we live our lives in despair. So what are you grateful for? You know what I'm grateful for? I'm grateful that God has given us these marks. That I want you and I, as Christians, to be known by these three things. I don't want us to be known by our political affiliation or our economic status or our social agenda. We as Christians need to be marked by these things, a faith that is working out in action, a love that is laboring, even though it's hard and at our expense, loving others. At the same time, we have a hope that allows us to stand firm. So imagine if you're a Thessalonian church, uh, Christian hearing for the, for the very first time, that yes, it's hard, but God will come back. He will rescue you. You can have hope. 